those baby pigs were moist. Ugh. Okay. Greetings and salutations, and welcome to Hacker Slash. If you're joining us again, welcome back. A good night to enjoy the fruits of the land. If this is your first time listening, welcome to the party. We are a horror movie review podcast dedicated to telling you whether a movie is a hack, a total joke, a waste of time, or a slash. Totally killer, pun intended. We believe horror is for everyone, and as such, we're rating these movies with the perspective we've all gained from our varying walks of life and the flavors of fear we fancy most. My name is Chris. I'm your friendly neighborhood slasher enthusiast. This week, I'm joined by the superfly space guy, Mac. It wasn't just Italians. The gore lover, Alexis. You smell like an androgynous baby. The cowardly creeper, Ryan. Hiya. And the scream queen, Paris. They want a witch? I'll give them a witch. October may be over, but the spooky season spirit is still running strong with us this week as we wrap up a horror trilogy we visited over the last few months. Before we get down to business, though, we have some follow-up. We had so much fun creating all of that content for Spooky Season, and the month of October has been one of our most successful months yet. And we'd like to take this time to thank all of our new patrons. Thank you so much for your support. Your posters are on the way, and we look forward to your continued support. And that's our follow-up. Well, for the last few months, we've dived into a world of films based on R.L. Stein's famous teen book series. Now, these films, currently streaming on Netflix, wield different subgenres of horror as they show a group of teens attempting to break a curse that's resided over their small town. When last we visited this franchise, we were given a glimpse into the events of a summer camp massacre in 1978, and were brought one step closer to uncovering how to break the curse. This week, though, we travel back to the beginning. This week, we're talking about Fear Street Part 3, 1666. Who's seen this one before? Well, personally, I was waiting for this episode to watch this. I had fast-forwarded a little bit after we did one and did two too soon, so I waited for three until just before this. You did it in a very smart way because I did not. Right after I binged part two, I binged part three. I watched part three, I think two days after we reviewed part two. And I watched it last night for the very first time. How delightful. So I watched this after we recorded the episode for the 1994 Fear Street. So I kind of watched them all in very quick succession. And I was really excited to dive into this part of the story. It was one I think when looking at the franchise as a whole, I was the least excited for 1666 because period pieces ain't my jam. You know what I mean? I'm just not really into it. But by the time the second movie ends and this one begins, it actually hooked me in a very compelling way. There was one element of this movie that I was not sold on. It was kind of distracting when I first watched it. So going into this one, I was expecting to be distracted by that that, uh, vocal element yet again. But what were you folks expecting? Was it the accent work, Chris? It was the accent work, Paris. Oh, God. (laughs) Listen, that is not something that I was expecting going into this. But I will say after hacking the first two, I was the most hopeful for this one. Because I don't know, the way you and Alexis like raved about it, I was like, maybe they tie it up in a way that I'll find satisfying and it'll make it all worthwhile. So I was cautiously optimistic going into this. And when I started, I was realizing that like the recaps make the movies look a lot better than I remembered them. And I think it's because they give you all of the good parts like back to back and like in quick succession. Whereas the movies themselves kind of make you wait through like so much like setup and a long like build up. And then by the time you get to the good stuff, you like barely care anymore. And I think that's been my experience so far. I just want to point out that Paris listened to how Alexis and I had high praise for the first for the first two movies and this movie and still he thought maybe he'd agree with us when historically he disagrees with us more often than not i'm hopeful to be fair i was kind of on a similar boat paris 
I watched the first one and got excited for the second one. And then after watching the second one, I was like, okay, I'm in. Like, I'm I'm ready to ride. I, I thought we were going to get something great here. I had high expectations. I do feel weird about the period piece situation, especially the characters that we have being in the period piece. was a little strange. But I really thought this was going to be a good one. And like you said, Paris, I was really hoping it got wrapped up nicely. Yeah, watching this in sequential order and back to back, I just had so much excitement that I wasn't sure if I'd get the same excitement. So I was expecting this to be not as fulfilling, I guess, for me watching it a second time. I went into this expecting kind of a just typical 17th century witch hunt kind of thing. I was expecting like the Scarlet Letter meets some kind of witch trial, right? Uh, I expected it to be kind of slow, kind of dull, and have, of course, insane gore based on the last two movies. Did you get that, though? I'll be honest. This was the story that I think we had been waiting for for two parts because we've mentioned in our previous reviews that we wanted the witch story to either just go away or be used in some smart way. And we finally see it to fruition here. Um, I actually was interested in the story the whole way through. I'll be honest. I don't think I got what I was looking for or what I expected in this movie. There's a moment in the story that changes and there's no preparation for it, no hint towards it in any of the trailers or anything like that. So for me, I found myself a little bit not attached to this movie, not invested in it, and honestly, sleepy. I understand that. To me, the movie felt a little bit disjointed while I was watching it. I felt like I watched a movie and then I watched a second movie. I was like, oh, okay, this is very interesting. Yeah, I fully agree with that. So during the, let's say, main movie inside this movie, I was reminded a lot of things that I liked, which are, I guess, period pieces. I've never really considered this, but that is something that I enjoy when they're done well. And it reminded me a lot of the movie The Witch, but more of like a Disney Channel original movie version. It's not nearly as like dark-sided or like serious or grim. And I found that to be like kind of nice. The overall teen quality that this franchise has been bringing, I think, worked best here because there's sort of a juxtaposition of like young teen girls, but also puritanical 1600s times. And I found that to be kind of fun, like when um Kirsten Dunst played Marie Antoinette. But I can't say those feelings were as great throughout. There were definitely times where I rolled my eyes so hard that I thought they were going to fall out of my skull. Well, that sounds intense. It was intensely cheesy. There are some cheesy moments that happen here, Mm. especially with the accents. (laughs) Okay, so here's the thing. This movie, I think, slapped me silly when it first starts. We get the accents. We get the perspective that the story is told through. And and I think it's interesting and it caught me off guard. And I was like, oh, I don't know how I feel about this. I just watched two movies with all these people. I don't know what's going on. And I found that the more I went in the more okay I was with that because I think this movie feels the most layered of all of them. The other ones feel like layered storytelling in terms of let me start here, flashback here, and then jump back again. Whereas this felt like the perfect, uh, it felt like the perfect parallel of just about everything else we see in the franchise, not only in the main relationship, the core relationship in this story, but looking at Sarah's story, looking at the relationship between family members, looking at the journey that Sam and Dina have gone on and how that is paralleled here. This movie is a reflection of 1994. But it does so in a way that feels a little bit darker. It feels a little bit more intense. And the thing that I think is cool about this and the way that they approach this story starting out in 1994, then coming back in, I found that I just felt sadder and sadder as these movies went on while I was watching it. Because in 1994, some people die and it's like, okay, it's these crazy kids. And then in 1978, we get 
innocence lost, like plenty nice kids in a cabin getting picked on, getting bullied, and then they get killed. And in this one, it's just pure innocence being stolen right before your very eyes. And it's a little, it's a little sad. It's a little sad. Chris loves Michael Myers, not down for Fear Street. Oh, I'm down for it. I'm down for it. But Michael Myers also doesn't really kill kids until like 2018. (laughs) I was so disappointed in the lack of gore in this movie because I was riding high on this part two, super excited, super stoked. And now knowing that that was the last one filmed makes sense because there was such a lack of it in this one. Yeah, it definitely felt like they added no new horror elements to this one. That's because the real horror is other people. I don't do good with that. <laughs> don't roll your eyes. It's true. It's it's not my favorite type of movie, the newer ones. I mean, I do love them, and I understand where it's coming from, but it's not... We've talked about this previously. It's just not my type of horror. I, I know that that exists. I watch horror to escape that, so just not my thing. Well, I got to react here because the thing that surprised me was the kill count and where the majority or, or at least a good portion of those kills came from. I did not expect that to happen, and that like caught me off guard completely. Now, they weren't necessarily gory, I'll give you that, but they were pretty, you know, in-your-face kills. Oh, yeah. The remnants of that, the aftermath of that was intense. And I think, if, obviously, if we had seen these things being plucked about, I think, yeah, it's something that Alexis would have certainly enjoyed. But the product that we get and the scene that we get feels more horrific to me than a lot of what we got in 1978 from an emotional level. Oh, wholeheartedly agree with you there. Emotionally, you know, you can feel for the characters in that scene. I was not in any way invested emotionally in the characters involved in that scene. Agree. And Have you been invest- emotionally invested this entire trilogy? Uh, no, I've, that's I've, not saying much. By the end of this, I was invested in a couple of them. I can say that. Yeah, I think... This is one of those things where Chris is going to have more feelings about certain things that happened here than the rest of us, or at least Paris and I do. And that's okay. You know, we're all allowed to be who we are here in this world. Team fuck them kids. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not that. Fuck them kids, though, right? Wow. Bro, chill. <laughs> it's a little extreme. <laughs> with that being said, I think I mostly was disappointed by the direction that this movie did go with this story, with the witch, with the ending. I don't know. There's quite a few things here that were not what I expected, and I don't necessarily love what they did. It was just, I think, far from what I expected and unsatisfying in ways that I cannot wait to unpack later. I, too, was quite surprised by the choices they made with everything we've gotten so far. And I got to a point where I was like, okay, I'm half sold on this, but what are we going to do with this? And then what they did with it was kind of blah. And that's where I ended up finding the most like cheesy, kind of like corny moments. I agree with that because I feel like the cheesy moments that you are referring to were the moments where I said... Wow, feels like a story I've heard before. Feels like something I've seen before. Something, and I think I'm pretty sure I said it out loud to him. Like, wow, seen this before. I'm like, yep, writing this down in originality for sure. Okay. Well, here's the thing, though. Sometimes the best kind of horror is the stuff you've already seen before. And I think that's what got me in a surprise about this movie. It's how authentic a lot of these experiences are and again i'm not getting down to the things that disappointed me because the end of this movie falls apart but all the way up until then 
this movie feels the most relatable and I fucking loved it. And, and and here's the thing, right? Like, yeah, it's a story I've heard before. Yeah, I've seen that happen before, but that's okay because it doesn't get seen enough and I'm totally fine with that. Now, this trilogy relies on the suspension of disbelief and I know I've like defended it the first two films, but there is something that happens at the end of this movie that it just, it's totally ridiculous and implausible and I can't even get behind that. But it doesn't take away from what I think this movie does well, which it's such a surprise. It's how well they treat their characters. I was really impressed by the depths there. When speaking of depths, I think one thing you can leave out, though, is the depth of how scary this film could be. So, I mean, I'm obviously not scared by any movie. We've all talked about this for two years now, but I think this movie might be like almost nightmare inducing for an eight-year-old i think for the target audience of teens they're just gonna like talk about it for days but i think as an adult you you don't you don't feel fear going into this okay you don't feel modern fear for sure like this the jump scares in this are not a thing the gore is not a thing if you're looking at this for like your classic horror movie thrills not a thing but an emotional fear a one person can just choose to fucking ruin your life kind of fear or being thrown on the ground and having your clothes ripped off of you kind of fear. That shit hit heavy. The patriarchy's a real fear. Or even a Sarah fear. <laughs> the scariest part about this movie is how generous Chris is being about some of these things, okay? <laughs> these are all legitimate things I felt. Like, I'm not afraid of watching... I'm, I'm watching this, but I'm not gonna, like, you know, have nightmares tonight. But... Like looking back, and I think like putting yourself in in the shoes of a woman existing in this period of time, one person could say anything they fucking want about you, and then you're burning or hanging, and that's terrifying. Again, this movie isn't scary. I'm not here to say it is, but the time period, woof. Yeah, I see what you're saying, Chris. I think it goes back to when we were reviewing part two and we had very similar perspectives. And I think that's where we might get disjointed in this, in this review. But it was not scary. The only thing I did find scary were some of the gore that was in this movie. It wasn't much, but it was scary and kind of odd, if you could say that. <laughs> but not terrifying. Yeah, I can't say that I felt any modern fear, as Chris put it, but I can concede that a time period where being gay and being a witch were pretty much the same thing does sound kind of spooky and scary, and I think witch hunts are now inherently gay culture. The condescending, I do somewhat agree. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Listen, any concession I can provide is all I have to give. The patriarchy. (laughs) It does set back women. (laughs) Well, before anyone gets ahead of themselves here, we just got to be 100% honest and say that this movie is not at all original. Agreed? Agreed. Disagree. Okay. So if you've seen Ready Player One, it is so chock full of nostalgia and like cultural references. And I feel like that's what this trilogy is, but for horror, right? Ready Player One has the whole like action computery stuff going on, but it like calls back to every video game or movie you might have watched if you were alive during the 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s. And that's kind of what this does. It like tries to play with that. I don't think that Ready Player One was original either. So I think anytime you're doing a piece that is just chock full of nostalgia, like on purpose, you're not going to get many originality points. I will give it credit for finally giving us the story that they were using to tie together the last two movies. 
So I, I think having that actually go somewhere gets like a little bit of credit, but just it's on purpose. This is pointing to stuff you know, because that's how it, it gets you in the feels. You mean breaking a curse? That's where they were coming from. Well, breaking a curse, all the other movie references, you know, that they, they bake into everything, all of the tropes that are in all of it. I mean, it's, it's all on purpose. It's all familiar yeah. as a deliberate point. I do have to say, with that, Mac, I am at least thankful that we got a wrap-up to the story that had been trailing us along this whole way. We've been on a long, long journey with Sarah Fear, and I'm very thankful we finally got details. You know, whether or not you love how we wrapped up, that's a different thing. But at the very least, questions were answered, things were solved, which is very nice to see. I did not want to be left empty on this journey. Honestly, I feel like this one was actually the most original. I'm surprised that there was this unanimous, this movie's unoriginal from everybody. What? So specifically the witch hunt Salem, but with a gay angle vibes. Because I feel like we've danced around that a lot in culture, but I don't know that we've ever directly done it. And I wasn't mad. Exactly. So here's the thing. To, yes, beat by beat, you can say that this movie feels like every other like witchy movie or horror movie, etc. But... To uh, to undersell the LGBTQ plus angle, the people of color angle in this movie is to do such a great injustice and disservice because this movie gives people the representation that we've been craving our whole lives. And this is an original twist on that. I do agree. Now, Ryan, earlier you mentioned how this story concludes. And I think overall, the trilogy ended in a way that I'm not mad about. But I don't know that this movie specifically had a stellar ending. In fact, I think the ending of this Fear Street might have been the worst. Agree in a sense that I felt like the buildup was so intense for this movie. And it just let me down. Okay, I gotta get on board with this idea that this is like a good ending to the trilogy, but not the best ending of all three of them. I think the ending we get to the film itself is kind of wishy-washy. I think there we have the first half of the movie that ends in a really satisfying way. And then when we switch halves, we get to this this final chapter of everything. You know, that one, that ending gets a little bit weaker. I still don't think it's bad. I think it's probably better than at least one of the other films. Um, I just felt it was kind of predictable. I have to agree. Like I said earlier, watching the first and second one made me excited to continue the series. And this one, again, just have to be honest, like I had to rewatch this ending several times because it got to a point where I just felt like I was in the same story again and I just lost all interest in it, basically. It felt like, hey, you know, this is probably going to have a happy ending. So I'm just kind of meh about it. I don't think this was one of the best endings of the series. I don't think it was like the worst ending I've ever seen. But again, I'm happy to have the story wrapped up. I'm happy that things were tied together in ways that they should have been. But I'm not in love with the end of this movie. Yeah, I mean, the on paper conclusion, totally cool. I think some of the conclusion that we get for particular characters, I'm on board with. There's a really satisfying element of this where I feel like, hmm, they finally got this. And, and it feels good for these people. However, there's a severe lack of consequence or follow-up to a major aspect of this ending. And I'm not on board with that. It seems real weak. But that's neither here nor there. Ultimately, it's going to impact a rating. But before we get down to scoring this movie, Alexis, how many people died? We have a total of 19 deaths in this movie. Which is a big number. Yeah, it's a big number. And like Mac mentioned, it's padded a little bit in a certain scene. And what about the animal report? 
yeah, I'm going to be honest with you. The animal report, not cool this week. The, the, there are things that happen in this movie that are not kosher. I'm not down for it. You know, beware. <laughs> Literally and figuratively. <laughs> exactly. Well, let's see if that ends up being the worst part of all of this. But let's go ahead and get into our ratings. Fear Street Part 3, 1666. The conclusion. Was it a hack or a slash? So I raved about this series, this franchise, so long. And once I got to this third part, the first time I watched it, pretty sure I texted Chris mentioning that I liked it and I loved the direction it was going and how I honestly didn't see it. I got the vibes, but weren't getting some vibes about some characters. I enjoyed that, but I don't think somehow the way this movie is presented to me just doesn't go through my brain correctly. It's just stops in the middle. It's like, okay, you're getting the other movie now. When I really wish that first part of the movie, this 1666 was maybe spread out a little bit, even though I'm not a fan of period pieces, I feel like that would have made it flow better for me. There's more things that I dislike than like about this movie, but I've given out worse slashes. But I don't know, I'm comparing this to all the other two movies, which I know is unfair, but I'm just going to do it anyway. Um, So this gets a hack. Oh, wow. Gotta love her. (laughs) I think I align with some of those things, Alexis. This movie is a little bit tough in the way that it just rips you from 1666 back to 1994 with no plan. With no ticket or anything. With no permission, really. They just throw you back into it. And unfortunately, I feel like a lot of the movie is something we've already seen from this series. I don't think it lacks originality in a sense of like, oh, it references other movies and such the way the first and second one did. I think it lacks originality in the way it like references itself in some scenes and some things they choose to do. I am into period pieces in some ways when they're good and don't involve people with horrible accents. And that's something that really distracted me here. Many of those little tiny things I couldn't get past and I couldn't get into it. And the ending lost me. The explanation for everything. I wouldn't say it doesn't make sense. I'm okay suspending my disbelief. I just didn't love it. I didn't like where it took me. I really liked where I was after the first and the second movie, but not this one. So it's a hack for me. Tune in next week to find out if me and Chris are still friends because I feel the disappointment from literally a thousand miles away. (laughs) I'm over here (laughs) sending gifts to her so that she laughs and still loves me. Okay. (laughs) But it is what it is. I don't love this movie. I do like the series. I don't think it's horrible. I just, it's not for me. I think this is the one that I got the most, like the goosebumps vibes, like Mac was originally saying for the first one. So like Ryan, I also enjoy a period piece. And I feel like this one did it in a way that felt just intentional enough in the way that they didn't fully commit to it. And they kind of kept some elements of the characters that were in more modern times in these older depictions. And that large segment of this movie, I actually really enjoyed. It's like a full-on lesbian love story, witch hunt that's super stylized. It reminded me of The Beguiled and, like I said, Marie Antoinette with Kirsten Dunst, and those are things that I really enjoy. But a big part of the ending had very much like Home Alone, like hijinks, like very like goofy, childish, juvenile energy, and I did not like that at all. I did like some things in the ending, especially some of like the spatial and temporal parallels that are drawn and kind of come to life in a way that felt like a long time coming. But I am actually the opposite of Alexis in this and that I enjoyed more than I disliked. So this is getting a slash from me. What? Not surprising. Now, does it make all three of them worth watching? I don't know, not necessarily. But if you're going to watch any of them, watch all of them because the ending 
is the best part of it, the trilogy. That's very interesting coming from you, Paris. I can say that. I was not expecting it whatsoever. I had fun until we got back to the 90s. And then I was like, oh, eh. but then it kind of circled back in the end end. Well, I'll add this. This movie is what I was waiting for the entire three part series. I think we were led on with the whole like witch aspect and never really delivered anything until until now, until 1666. I think the payoff we get in this movie was so much better than what we had to go through to get here, though. I think it's been very obvious watching all of all three parts. This is targeted for young teens whose parents are either okay with them watching gory horror movies or whose parents aren't aware that they watched it. I'm not the target audience, so the dialogue intentions, they don't really do it for me. It it doesn't feel dark enough. But the last installment showed that there was a method and a reason behind everything. And I would love to see an adult-targeted version of this. But this is Arl Stein, so you can't expect Stephen King. Perhaps I went into the entire series with kind of unfair expectations, but I enjoyed this part the most, and I'm going to give it a slash. Ew. Now that is the most surprising thing to happen all night. Honestly, I, I, <laughs> once again, here to balance things, because what's wrong with y'all? It was the best one. What's wrong with y'all? <laughs> and Paris, I got I to gotta agree with you in the whole 1666 aspect. That part of this movie is what sold it. So when, when I was watching that and we made it to the point where it switches back over and we get a second half, that's when I realized I get it. I get it why everyone on the pod loves this. Same. Until they didn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this movie did not taste good the first time I started it. It was, you hit me hard with the accents. You hit me hard with people who I had just grown accustomed to loving in certain roles and thrust them into another. But the more it went on and the more I just sat and thought about it and the more I I let myself be open to feeling things, the more I was able to see myself in this movie. And that felt really intense. Being able to look at some of the, the quotes that get delivered in this movie, bad accents aside, actually, I think now that I think about it, a couple of them were technically good accents. It just felt wrong because we hear them talking completely differently for two movies prior to this. But looking at some of the the quotes in this movie and the way they cut so deep was unexpected. I think we go from the silliness and the intensity of the first film into the, oh my gosh, I am like getting teary-eyed for this bond between sisters in the second film to then completely going into this other dynamic that I just wasn't expecting. And the intensity of the performances in this, however hokey some of them may feel, completely sold this movie for me within that 1666 portion. The wrap-up, it's weak. It for sure is. The things that happened in that mall, super weak. There are some really cool cinematic parallels that I'm a fan of, but it's the ultimate ending that I'm concerned with, and it's the resolution that we get for something that started 300 years ago. So. With that, it's a slash. I have plenty to say. I have plenty of commentary on the relationship between Hannah and Sarah and Dina and Sam and looking at how this whole thing started and how its legacy lasted over centuries. But we'll get there in a bit. Now, folks, Fear Street Part 3, 1666, has earned three slashes and two hacks and not in the way you might expect. But check it out. Join us in the second half so we can cut through the deep shit together. We'll see you in a bit. searching for the witchy remains of your eternal love? Are you on the hunt for a way to end a centuries-long curse? 
Are you looking for a clue to help you find your witchy boo? We'll show you which way to go with Witchway. Our compact witch-finding device will fold up to fit into any cargo pocket. Detect your enchantress of soul through the sides of a U-Haul. Pair with your Subaru to get hands-free notifications while you're on the hunt. Find your decimated bay with Witchway, because love never dies. Welcome back, folks. You are now entering the spoiler zone for Fear Street Part 3, 1666, which has still managed to squeak by with three slashes and two hacks. Now, we have a lot to get to here, but before we get into the specifics of our ratings, obviously Alexis has some discrepancies with the gore. Alexis, what's the gore score for this film? I mean, I was generous and gave it a medium, to be quite honest with you, because what you do see is quite crazy but there isn't a lot of gore in this and i'm pretty sure that this film in the franchise is known for it being that you know what's crazy though is that this movie starts off and this is going to disappoint ryan a lot but starts off with a lot of animal gore it really does and i was not prepared i mean it is 1666 i get it but it was like intense you know to be clear the second we saw the cute boy mary boy i was like oh i'm so sad for you already but did you really think the mama pig was going to eat her babies? I was like, and then they show it. I'm like, I, I know it's not real, but it seemed pretty real. It seemed like she was eating spaghetti. Oh my God, stop. <laughs> Harry spaghetti. <laughs> stop. <This> is- <laughs> Ryan's getting offended. <laughs> Both by the thought of pigs and spaghetti. <laughs> not the spaghetti. Spaghetti. I just don't like that word. Ugh, it's like moist. No, spaghetti is way better. Very different. <laughs> Very different. Same, same, but different. Well, those those baby pigs were moist. Ugh. Okay. Ugh. Their insides were. That was a lot of blood they left behind. And I don't quite know why we had to see that. I do not know either. And I also don't understand why literally this movie only has three things that are really gory. Mm. One, the animals. Two, all the face things and doing with your face, eyeballs. The whole face coming off of Cyrus. And the hand. We finally figure out how this hand is cut off. Bro, that thing really ripped off like an old teddy bear, you know? Yeah. To be fair, though, I want to just quickly readdress the, the pig situation because, man, real sad for those little babes. But also, it's foreshadowing, you know? It's like the, the mama bear... Mama Pig turning on her young, just like the pastor does, just like everybody fucking else does in Shadyside. It's like, this is the moment, like, the catalyst, right? The spark that lights the fire of, oh, shit's not okay here anymore. I really thought they were just doing it to add to the pestilent vibe, but that's definitely a really good detail I didn't notice before, Chris. Okay, but also, I feel like we get violence against children or violence against animals, and maybe not both in one movie. What I could have done with that was Mary Boy. Mary Boy didn't need to go into the well. Right. But I get the pig thing. I do agree. You need to pick one out of the three. Clearly, they're just here to break all the rules. I mean, it's okay. They literally had a face on the floor. And the rule they break here is I've seen a lot of movies when your face gets peeled off and you're dead. There's a lot of movies I've seen when stuff happens in your face. And then when Solomon comes in and sees, I mean, I swear, I think the eye blinked. I know it didn't, the eyeball, but it... It was sitting there and you could see it. And the detail on that was fucking awesome. Sad question. What face are you talking about? You did not see it? The eyeballs were off. 
Yeah, but it still had skin and stuff hanging on it. Like from the insides of the body, not like the whole face. I guess from the, like, you know, the eyebrows and stuff. Yeah. Okay, I thought you meant like the whole damn face. No, I guess I made it seem like it was, but it, it, it looked and felt like it was, but no, it wasn't. When she picked it up and felt it, it felt like a whole face. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have to say, though, there is a lot of gore in this. I'm very disappointed. But my favorite kill, very underwhelming, but to me, left a cherry on top was the Sunnyvale resident at the end. I was like, I just love this twist and turn of events. Thanks. That was everyone's favorite because all the rest of them are miserable. <laughs> no, I mean, that was the one that I picked as the favorite because I don't want to really address the rest of these kind of rough kills. I mean, obviously, you don't want to see any of the kids. A lot of the kills that happen in the 1666 part are kind of horrible, especially like Sarah Fear, stuff like that. So, I mean, maybe Nick Good is a favorite kill, but this one's a rough question for this movie. Mm. I was very happy to see Nick Good go and have that moment where Sarah finally got her revenge. And for the moment, it looks like Sarah. So good. I just wanted more for Nick Good. I feel like he really deserved to suffer. Well, they, you know, she took an eye for some eyes. That's true. That's true. I did think about that. I have a favorite. I actually have three listed. And my first one was Cyrus Miller because I think it was a pitchfork that he got stabbed with, right? But not like, you know, he got like one thing of the pitchfork. I don't know what you call it. A tang? I don't know. But he got the entire pitchfork. Prong. Not one prong. Four prongs. All the way through the abdomen. All the way through the torso. He is just forked at that point. Um, and that's just a really gnarly way to take somebody out. Yeah. Get forked, nerd. I will be the one to say it. I liked it when the kids were all dead. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Seeing that full church and like from behind, you're like, oh, what are all these kids doing listening to this madman absolutely ranting the most horrible things you've ever heard? And then you start to see them all from the front and you realize that all of their eyes have been gouged out. I was like, ooh, that's a reveal. That's a real gag and shit's getting real right now. That was a good moment. I think cinematically it was one of my favorites for later, but that was just so spooky. It's just, the, then think of the horrors leading up to that. Obviously we see the aftermath, but it's like these children are in this church with this pastor who this whole community loves. There's so much trust there. And to think of what they must have felt, because you can't get all the eyeballs out at once. You have to like go one by one, then stage them. And it's like, what the fuck, man? Like, what's the process for that? What's the workflow? Yeah. And it tied back into like the little nursery rhyme that they were singing when he was, I don't know, milking a cow or something. And they were like, the blind priest, blah, 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 blah. And it was like a song or something. And then he like turned around and like scared them. And I was like, blah, and just kind of playing around. And I was like, oh, no. But this time for real. Yes. I do have a backup. That was Officer Kopinski. And he's the first cop to get killed in the mall. And it's only because of how cool it was that he was holding his flashlight, right? And they were like putting their water guns down. And he gets got from behind and his flashlight just like eat levels out with the camera. So you see this glare and the milkman was the one who did him in. For some reason, it was just that it wasn't like a shocking moment, but it was that moment of like, okay, no, the killers are here. They're doing it. And it was just that the beauty of that flashlight. I'm a sucker for a good lens flare. That moment uh, was probably the best part of the ending. You do love a lens flare. I do. J.J. Abrams. 
Yeah, Chris, I love the practical effects. And, you know, the favorite part of mine visually definitely has to go to those kids. Like the eyes, it's just very daunting and spooky. But I do have a backup. It's a specific scene when Dina and her brother are running away from Nick Good. And Nick Good is looking out as they're getting in the cop car. I don't know why it was just so daunting and pretty cool to see like the two branches frame him out. I don't know why, but that just seemed to stand out to me. It's because subconsciously it sent you back to Halloween 2018 with a cop car in the woods and the trees and Michael Myers stomping on faces and reminds you of more gore in another movie. That's probably why. Yeah, obviously. Obviously it was that. I'm going to go for an easy one here, and I got to say it's the like UV lit black light mall. The lesbian lighting. The 30 minutes of lesbian lighting. Yeah, it was beautiful. It's bisexual lighting at best. <laughs> it was very star court, and I appreciate that kind of like neon feel. Yeah, I'm going to have to just piggyback on that. That's also my favorite visual because nothing was visually very attractive for the entire 1666 part of this. The best part about the neon mall is the ridiculous writing that glows on all like the doorways and stuff that's just say like obscure, vulgar things, especially about like Nick Good. And in my mind, I couldn't stop thinking, man, that seems like it took a lot more time than you guys really would have in this situation to write all those things. But they were really nice to look at. Oh, I will get to the mall graffiti in a little while. But the the lighting, the black light stuff wasn't a, a thing that I could really get into. I think of black light and I think of laser tag as a child, which is like a fun thing, but I only did it like once, so I don't have this attachment to it. To be fair, they were kind of doing that here just with water guns. Yeah, yeah, and, and blood, you know, diluted blood. But I think for me, it was something cinematically they did, and it's not exactly a particular camera technique, but it was their use of parallels in the imagery of this whole movie. And one moment in particular is when Sarah is emerging. She's realized that Solomon Good is this dude who's doing all this stuff. She has no hand and she walks out into the middle of Union defeated and resigned. And Hannah's there chained up, but she doesn't even try to hide. She's just kind of thinking we're all fucked, right? So to see her come out from that moment and then on the flip side of that, towards the end, to see Dina and Sam walk out from the same path together, from beneath the town, into the home, and walk out into this opportunity where, you know, 300 years ago, they were about to be killed. That was a really satisfying moment. And this movie parallels not only moments within itself, but moments in other movies beautifully. And I think, Paris, I don't know if that's what you're alluding to with the temporal balance between all of them. Absolutely, yes. And I'm so glad that you mentioned it because that was my backup for favorite visual. So I'm glad you covered it. You did it beautifully. However, my favorite visual element, and I'm glad nobody took it, was the reveal of what the fuck this red moss fungus was all along. I fucking love that so much. My heart. So the whole time I'm like, what is this like red velvet bullshit that's like in the woods for some reason? And for it to be revealed that it was like Sarah Fear's buried corpse was wearing like a laurel crown made by her lesbian lover out of some kind of maybe a fungus, it looks like. And then it just like spread as her body lay rotting. And like knowing like how fungus works, it like probably fed off of her entire corpse and then spread into be 
that like lush red bed inside that forest. I was like, wow, that's actually a huge gag. Everyone's been like just touching reincarnation, reincarnated parts of her body with that moss. And I thought it was really well done. It was kind of cheesy, the effect that they used as it was like spreading out, but it was like so emotional, I guess, for me that I didn't really care in the moment. Exactly. I don't care about the execution of it because I love the intention of it. Exactly. I love that so much. And Yes, that it gets revealed when Sarah is rightfully buried at the end and that little that little piece of the wreath is put with her body. But my favorite scene is far before when she gets it for the first time. Oh, the feelings of the dalliance. <laughs> it was this intensity. First off, it reminds me of very Jane Austen energy, which is... Oh, yeah. If we're going to have a fucking slow burn, we're not going to be in a room alone together. It's like some meme, right? It's like the meme says, if we're going to be in a slow burn, we can't be in a room alone together. And so like 59 chapters in and our pinkies just better be touching. (laughs) Right. It's like the cusp of intimacy that they have standing right outside Hannah's home talking about their plans for later. And just like the way that Sarah looks at her lips. It's like there's so much tension there. And then to go into the dalliance and Sarah defends Hannah from this fucking creepy dude who's just trying to assert himself on her. But the beauty of the moment together, they are discovering each other, they're kissing each other, and they're they're questioning it and it feels wrong. And you have this, you know, Sarah says, I'm just not afraid with you, right? It's like giving into their feelings and like this relationship and this tension that they've been building together. And they stop and they doubt themselves like, ah, this is wrong. And she says, it doesn't feel wrong. And there's that moment that the the way the music hits and like, a, it's like a punch to the stomach when they hear the twig snap and Sarah asks what it was. And then they're like running back to town. It's just this whole range of just, we've done this. We've given into each other. How does this change our lives now? And then they have this moment of, I wasn't alive before now anyway. Ugh, so good. Best part of the movie. Chris, I love these feelings for you. And I'm not going to say anything else. I'm just going to say that I love these feelings for you. And I'm glad you get to feel this way about things in a movie and people in a movie and a relationship in a movie. Great. And, you know, completely related to that, my favorite scene is when the holes get cut into the ground because the deal with the devil has been made and we get to see everything build up together (laughs) has nothing to do with your emotional deep feeling full connection to this movie and really just has to do with i was really excited to finally figure out what ridiculous person made all this happen to shady side because i'm shallow chris unlike you you deep deep lovely person it's okay to feel things ryan one day i'll feel things but for now my favorite scene was finding out how trash young Solomon Good was because he really did seem like a good guy in the beginning here. And then he came around to just be complete garbage. So my favorite scene was not Paris's favorite part of this movie at all. And if anyone knows me, they know I love traps. I couldn't love this anymore. The third act of this movie where they're in the mall and they're setting up all the traps and the offspring is playing in the background and i just loved the whole vibe of it it was very jinxy you guys might say it's a little juvenile but i loved it i love home alone when he's setting it up you know i really wish i could just watch jigsaw well i guess in a few of the movies you do see him setting up the traps but i'd love to see a lot more of that I think just my beef with that 
is that didn't we kind of see the same thing in the first one? Like, didn't we do almost the exact same thing? Like, we lured all the monsters and we thought we'd kill them. Like, but this was intense. They had guns filled with blood. They had all sorts of things. They had a, a legit plan and it worked up to a certain point. I just felt so much like it was the beginning. They did that at the school. Yeah. And then they blew them all up in the bathroom. Well, that was probably my favorite part in that movie too. Different blood. This time there was black light. <sighs> Yeah, the first time it was just water and buckets, right? Follow this way. 100% less fire. No one thought it was neat, though, that they got the monsters to eventually fight each other. I think that was cool and hilarious at the same time. Yeah, I that was, like, one of the better parts. I, I do have a gripe about this whole mall situation, though. I feel like this movie felt consistent in its lore up to this point, but then you have the points where the milkman kills the cop, but why? Because he's not really doing much of anything. But then he walks by the others until they have blood. But the cop didn't have blood on him. So why'd he kill the cop? You know what I mean? Wasn't it because he was in the way? Don't they kill anybody that's in the way too? Well, all these other people were just sitting there. And they weren't attacked until they had, until Ziggy had Dina's blood on her. Also, am I to believe that these water guns were sealed so tightly that these monsters had no idea they were full of blood just right over there? through that doorway because the the whole time i was thinking oh yeah dang that's gonna draw them but this uh, to be fair we've been talking about this the whole way through this movie requires a suspension of disbelief because it doesn't make sense i don't understand why they're after certain people and not other people and i don't know it's a weird thing okay here's the thing i can suspend my disbelief in the watertight integrity of a super soaker okay i'm there i will pretend that that water didn't just drip all over my hands whenever i tried to use a water gun when i was a kid but they went to great lengths to point out, oh, they specifically went after y'all in 1994 because you had a little bit of blood on your shirt, on your shoes. You know what I mean? Like, they're very intentional in this one. Mm-hmm. Just kind of threw that away with that one cop kill. So true. I actually wrote down two of the scenes that you've already brought up. So I'm going to go for my third favorite scene. And that's when the town becomes rotten and starts going bad because that's the kind of darkness and greediness I was looking forward to in a time where everything seems really dark and gritty, right? There's no electricity. You're living this horrible lifestyle, giving out scarlet letters like it's cupcakes. And it just seems just really down and depressing. And when like literally the food is rotting and the pigs are eating their babies and, you know, somebody poisoned uh, the, the well with a dog, like who knows what's going on. Um, but when they make their way to the to the church and the doors are all boarded up, it reminded me of The Patriot. And I don't want to spoil it if you haven't seen The Patriot, but I'm going to anyway. There's a scene in which people are locked in a church, they can't get out, and then they're burned alive inside the church and they all die. So it's pretty epic, but it reminded me of that. As soon as I saw that the doors were locked to the church, I knew what was going on inside. And then when we finally get that reveal... It was no surprise to me that everyone, all the kids were dead. Like, I knew it going in. Like, if someone's in that church, he's killed them. I don't know why, but that's just what happens when they lock the doors from the outside. So that whole buildup of just, like, everything is horrible and disgusting and how we're supposed to live here all of a sudden overnight was just, like, the darkness that I needed. Have you ever been to Jamestown and been into one of the, like, supposedly really old houses, Mm -hmm. theoretically, you know? They don't seem very hard to lock. They seem real easy to just, like, get in and out of. I feel like in 1666, breaking out of a locked house, locked church, I don't know, feels simple to me. Yeah, it's because they didn't build them in Jamestown like they were doing in Union. I don't know, man. In Ohio. 
That's the heart of the Midwest. You got stronger wood out there. You think so? Has been beaten down by the coast. I don't fucking know. <laughs> okay. It also makes no sense that they're in Ohio and they're Puritans in, in the late 17th century, but whatever. A lot of things didn't make sense in the 17th century. They just kind of dug it all up and just moved it over to Ohio. Yeah, that's what, it's exactly what happened. Mac, the darkness that you liked in that scene was actually completely absent in my favorite scene, which was when we have the girls on their way to the party, and they're just kind of like key-keying and like talking that like old puritanical shit about like everyone else in the village. And I was just like, this is fun. This is just like girls being girls, having a good time on their way to a party to like get into a little trouble. Yeah, pointing out that one of them has a ring of fire for lady yeah. for laying with Mad Thomas. Like old-timey STD shit-talking about, like, the promiscuity of another girl in the village. I was like, you know, this is, like, a thread of continuity for these characters that I really appreciated. And we also got to see Kate again, who we hadn't seen for an entire movie because she died in the first one. I do have to commend them for selecting such magical blueberries that they give you a good feeling, hallucination, something. I don't know. They just seem like really good berries. You know, think about this, though. Uh, any kind of food that gives you that kind of impulse, like, they're not weathered down by modern medicine or, like, influenced by coffee, caffeine, things like that. You know what I mean? Like, back in the day with the random shit they're eating, I feel like one small thing is, like, you're a lightweight on life. Uh, could also be poison. You could also be dead. There's a couple of options. It's a good thing some of them have already figured that out. Honestly, I would have loved it if they had the devil's lettuce. That would have been amazing. Keep that shit away from me. That was a really good dynamic, Paris. And I think looking at the bond between the girls as they're going to that party was really special. I think the characters for this totally built this as a slash in my mind. Not only Dina and Sam, not only with Sarah and Hannah, but looking at even the tangential characters. I hated Tommy in 1978. I hate Mad Thomas now. But even just the delivery of, I can see a secret about you, girl. It's like, ooh, okay. You to me when I was in middle school. All right. I see you. (laughs) (laughs) But it was when Hannah's mom is just attacking Sarah. She's, God knows what you are, girl. You better pray for mercy on your damn soul. That felt so intense. And you know, hearing stuff like that growing up, you know, obviously it's not like in 1666, but that carries through through the 90s, through the early 2000s, etc. And it strikes an emotional chord that I think you could have tried to do with a and with a bad performance, it would have fell totally flat. So I was really, really satisfied by that. It did link up with Sam's mother and the way that she spoke to Dina. Exactly. Exactly. This movie is a reflection of itself in the best way possible, which is why I liked the approach to the storytelling with the characters. Putting the the faces of the people we know and love, well, maybe not love for some of you, into 1666 humanizes this story in a way that I, I get bored watching period pieces because I don't really want to watch a bunch of Puritans or Europeans who are just colonizing in the United States. You know what I mean? Like, it's just... You read in the history books, okay, you see that perspective, you hear that story. It is the narrative that we're all told growing up in history books. And it's just, give me something a little bit different. Give me a little bit of perspective that's told differently. And I think being able to put recognizable faces, being able to see things through Dina's eyes, and as she's living this pain for Sarah, I think she sees some of herself in Sarah, and I think she's able to see this whole thing differently for herself. Was she not... Sarah Fear reincarnated? No. 
Oh. No, it was just a movie. It it didn't make sense fully, but it was a choice that was made. And Chris, I completely am on board with that because you're right. We would not care about this story if it was some random people from 1666 and then some chick named Sarah Fear. We would be completely, it would be a legitimate different movie in the middle of the series. It'd be so weird. So I'm on board with that. I think they made some specific decisions, like we kind of said earlier, like they chose for this not to feel like they're trying to make us actually think Dina was in 1666. You know, they do some flashing back and forth, and I think it works really well. And I don't love all the characters all the time in that part, but it's it's what they were trying to do, and I think it's good. I will say, I, I do just have to complain that throughout this whole series, Sam just feels like a damsel in distress. 100% of the time. And by this point, when we're talking about Dina, Sarah Fear, losing a hand, going through all of this for her, I really lost any appreciation for that character. And I know that's her role. That's what has to happen. I get it. She's possessed the whole time, but I was overseeing Damsel in Distress Sam. So I get that 100%. Totally get that. I think even in the, in the first movie, we see, we start to see the story through Dina's eyes before we ever see it through Sam's. We don't get Sam's side of the story. We don't get Sam's perspective on anything, right? So then when she becomes possessed and Dina is so devoted in her love for her to save her, to choose her throughout this entire experience, regardless of how broken her heart was just a moment ago, I get how that, that would definitely paint the portrait of damsel in distress. I'm super over her, etc. Here's why I changed my outlook on, on that point, And it's because A, Sam in 1994 chose to give herself up. She's like, okay, no, this makes sense. I need to die. Right? Like she chose that. And then even looking back with Sarah and Hannah, Hannah fell behind and wanted Sarah to just get out, to live. Right? She didn't want her to be stuck there. And it was Sarah choosing Hannah, Sarah returning for Hannah and being steadfast in that love that I was okay with, right? It was about a balance of choice and not a matter of obligation. Sure, I can feel that. And that choice is really, really distinct because I think it makes the ending so much richer because you have Hannah and Sarah talking about being able to dance all night and kiss in broad daylight. And then 300 years later, they get that kiss at the end of the movie, right? It becomes that much more satisfying because while Dina isn't literally Sarah reincarnated, she is a woman who is walking in the footsteps of someone who came before her, someone who couldn't kiss in broad daylight, someone who is living with the pain of LGBTQ plus predecessors, right? fighting for that equality, fighting for that love and choosing that love every day and then still getting that kiss in broad daylight. So absolutely love that shit. Yeah, Chris, after I watched the first part of Fear Street, I texted you, I don't give a fuck about these lesbians. And by the end of all this, I give a fuck about these lesbians. Okay, I'm glad you said that because I have a link to share with you right now. Oh, a fan of them. But I agree with you, Ryan. Just Sam just is flat to me. She's just so flat. And I'm just also not a fan of these crossovers with everyone being a different character. I felt I lost the momentum with some of them because I loved all the characters in part two, but then they were side characters in this one. And then I, I don't know. It's just to me, I, you know, when you see an actor and you, and they play like a vicious, 
you know, protagonist. So you only see them like that and you actually don't like them. That's kind of how I felt. Not as strong, but that's how I felt throughout this movie. Yeah. The dude from Red Eye from yes. Quiet Place 2 can't do both. Cillian. Mm, I, I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, I like the parallels that they built because the fate of some of the characters in 1666 is reversed in the future, you know, where the actors play different characters. So some of the people who might live in 1666 are later killed in 78 or 94 and vice versa. And is anyone ever really living? No. What year is it? Not under that puritanical rule. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And it's that fate being reversed that makes a lot of this really, really interesting. And it just, it hits me thinking back to Sarah saying, I don't fear the devil, Hannah. I fear the neighbor who would accuse me. I fear the mother who would let her daughter hang. I fear union. And that really, you know, it's one of the best moments of dialogue in this movie because it underscores this whole reality that hell is other people. You know, we can sit here and pretend to be afraid of a goat in a guy's house and his allegedly satanic rituals, but ultimately it's the motives of people that result in all these actions, right? And I really loved that that movie that moment was such a high point which is why it made the worst part of the movie such a low point and that is the logistics of the fucking ending it is i'm cool with the happy ending for gina and sam let those girls be let them just sit there in love but you really mean to tell me that these people managed to kill nick good the sheriff who is idolized in this mall with all that blood all over the place and not a single consequence and Everybody believed them when they said that he was up to all that shit? Nah. Well, I think they were, like, charmed because the curse was broken, so luck was on their side and everything just, like, fell into place. Luck was on their side, huh? But, lest we forget, the brother is still the mayor of Sunnyvale. You know what I mean? Like, the mysticism of luck only goes so far because, like, how the fuck did they get out of that? When they played that clip on TV, I thought it was a total cop-out. They, I might have been better off not even playing it, just skipping over it entirely. Exactly, because it's almost insulting. It's almost like, oh, you really expect us to believe this? Because had it fast-forwarded like months, right? Or they at least address like Gina getting taken in. You know how in the first movie, 1994, they're all questioned by Nick Good, and they're all telling the same story, same story, same story. Give me a little bit of that to show that there was some concern. But I, I don't buy the total night and day difference of, and now everyone just inherently knows we were innocent. Okay, but it was night and day because it was cursed and uncursed. The curse was yeah. lifted, so everything reversed. And it was like, oh, now all of a sudden everyone can see how shitty Sunnyvale is. I love that. That's more generous than I was being this entire time with this trilogy. But reverse the curse, sure. That works in Beauty and the Beast when the Beast is suddenly a prince. But this is also a society that's been conditioned for 300 years to really believe that Nick Good is just fucking amazing and the Good family is amazing. By magic. By magic. And then the magic was broken. Yeah. I think the magic could be broken and dissuade you, like, from being a little less gullible, but you're still walking around with the facts being the facts, which is shocking. It's just, how do you explain that situation? It was a moment of cheese, and we got a lot of cheesy moments in the movie. One of them was one of my worst parts, and that was the writing on the wall, good is evil. So cheesy. And honestly, they should have just titled part three, the gang finds out good is evil. Yeah. Also, they showed it on camera. I feel like every chance they could. Yeah. Oh, they're like, soak that up. And then the other, one of my worst parts of the movie, we've already talked about in detail, uh, and that's just the accents. They were atrocious, and they shouldn't have been a thing. 
And I think they took away from it because they distracted, I mean, they distracted Ryan. So they, they could have just pulled it out altogether. We've been fine. I was fine on second watch with Gina's accent for Sarah. But the one I could not get behind totally was Josh's accent for Henry. It was just the most inconsistent thing I've ever heard. Also, were there even recording devices in 1666? Do we even know what people sounded like? We could have just <laughs> gone with regular accents. We actually don't because apparently every year they're like, you know what? When people were colonizing America, this is what British people sounded like. And the next year it's like, actually, no, this is what they sounded like. They just keep changing it. Right. Because it's made up because we don't know. So the best part of this movie for me there's more negative than positive, but the one I really want to focus on right now is Dina's hair because it did not get enough attention in the first part, but this one it did. I just loved it. It was flowy, natural, and it just looked beautiful on her. Dina absolutely has great hair. Yeah, she was hiding it in part one in like, I don't know, it just looked, I don't remember or recall it making an influence on me, but seeing her in uh, 1666 made an impression oh i thought she was hot the whole damn time also took me a good 45 <laughs> seconds to realize you were complimenting her and not talking shit about her i was like oh yeah no, no, no. <laughs> but it was great this is the very classic cop out of people who hacked a movie and have to figure out something positive to say about it so that was alexis's mine is that my favorite part of the movie is when they come out of the cave system into Sheriff Good's house. And it is like so intentionally, you know, Satan worshiper, right? We got like goat heads on the wall, which rest in peace goats, they don't deserve. And then like a family tree that's just like obvious. It just says good. And it's a tree with heads. Like there's no logic to it. That's not how family trees work at all, but <laughs> it's great. Nonetheless, the footsteps on the white carpet, you know, that whole bit is really just a little whimsical icing on the cake a little up yours to sheriff good you know it was, it was the best part for me and my worst part is pretty similar to max it's it's really a triple whammy because we get dina coming out of this full 40 minute long flashback and the first time she says good is evil i rolled my eyes and then we have ziggy hitting the zombie and she says i've wanted to do that all day and i rolled my eyes even harder and then finally like the dialogue between Dina and her brother about the Konami code was like so cringe and just like so stupid. And I was like, please kill me now. This is terrible. There's also, there's a moment where he's like, wait, we have blood in this gun. And then just like squirts it. And it's like obviously empty. And I'm like, well, if you had blood in the gun, I, I don't think squirting it right in front of you was a good idea to start with. It's just, there's a lot of corny dialogue here. Yeah. And then I lied. There's actually a fourth. It was on Dina's brother's cast when the girl he'd been chatting with online used at and then her username. That was not a thing back then. That is factually incorrect. No one was doing that. Okay, neither were SSDs. I'm, I fully don't understand what they were trying to do with that character at the end. Why was she talking about a solid state drive? And why did she use a, a, an, a handle? She fully had a Twitter handle. I was like, she had a bitch, Twitter what? <laughs> I don't get it. I didn't get it. I don't really understand the point. Maybe she was a time traveler. SSDs were introduced in 1989. They were actually invented in 1978. I still stand by the fact that a teenager in high school was not going to tell them that they needed an SSD when they were trying to buy Discman's, Walkman's, something giant, a radio. It was obviously a portable MP3 player before they existed. Y'all have no fucking vision, to quote him. Listen, <laughs> I don't. For that, to have a handle, it's weird. 
it just didn't make any sense. There was no reason. Like, she could have just been a cute, funny girl. It was just random. In reality, it would have been her AOL email address she handed it out. <laughs> right. Which does not start with an at. Actually, we weren't even there yet. Like, it was still time before you would have been in high school and had an AIM screen name. Well, so it wasn't AIM, right? It was AOL because we saw that in the first part. But still, everyone back then gave out the full email. Come sure, on. Sure, sure. You're right. You're right. I apologize. It wasn't AIM yet. That's what it was. But no handle. All right. I'll admit to it. I'm happy we watched all three movies. You know, if we had just watched one or maybe watched two, I wouldn't have felt very good about the whole series. But because we went through all three and I really clicked with the third one, especially the part that was set in 1666, I I enjoyed it. You know, I, I get why people like it. I don't think I'm ever going to watch it again, but I get it. Pretty sure I'll eventually end up watching these in the future. I've been trying to tell my boyfriend to watch these because we like Riverdale and all those very similar shows that he would like this. So maybe one day I'll get to watch them again. But I think I've had enough for seeing all of them at least twice. So I'm good for now. I'm super good. No, thanks. Hey, good is evil. I will certainly be watching these again. But, you know... Thinking about how I had to defend this movie tonight, I'm going to wait a long time before I show it to my girlfriend and inevitably have to defend it again. I'll consider when I'm actually going to do it, but I do think there's a lot of value to this movie. I think there's a lot of value you can pick up on a rewatch, and I think there's even more value that Matt can bring you in Factor Fiction. Number one. The Nightwing Killer was supposed to be masked early on in Part 2, but test audiences felt the killer seemed far too similar to Jason Voorhees. Fact. Fact. Fiction. Netflix doesn't have test audiences for this shit. Okay. I don't know. I'm point this out. This isn't a Netflix production. It's just distributed on Netflix. Ew. Mm-hmm. So, actually, Paris is right, though. Um, the director watched the actor playing Mad Thomas when they were filming 1666 and decided his face should be shown for longer in part two because the plan originally was, you know, masked, and then she's like, oh, my God, he's so good that now I want to, like, show his face and show his lack of emotion for longer. Uh, what a what a choice. I would not have looked at that face and thought, yums, let me see more. Yeah. No, I think it's like one of those faces that's like ugly on purpose and that's why they show it. You know what I mean? Like one of those actors. Yeah, but then he wasn't attractive in the 1978 film. No, he's ugly. That's his thing. I don't think it had to do with attraction or aesthetics. More so just like, like wow, his performance was so good. Number two. The mid credit scene showing someone grab the book exists because the director wanted to show that the cycle could never be truly broken. I didn't see it. Fiction. Y- yeah, fiction. I didn't either. What is this, a Marvel movie? Oh, I did. I fully watched it. And I was like, oh, there's going to be another one. So sure, f- we'll say fact. Fiction, only because I made up the whole thing about the cycle not being broken. The real reason, though, is they have ideas for further movies. And I have a quote. The way I saw it was as horror Marvel. I just feel like there's so many cool opportunities to tell the story of the Milkman, to tell the story of Ruby, and a bunch of other killers that we've never talked about. Beyond that, just the idea that Shadyside is kind of in this place of, to reference Buffy the Vampire Slayer, like the Hellmouth. There is something happening in this town where the devil is lurking. And then, hopefully, continuing to explore, what does it mean when evil is just out there hanging in the open? Could that be for another trilogy as well? I don't know. I'm really excited about that possibility that tracks i initially started this by saying the first one feels like horror but with superheroes but not superheroes like marvel and i think 
I would love to see more of these characters and hear their story. As long as they're a little gruesome, less goosebumps, you know? I just want the little kid swinging the bat. Yeah, that's the one I want to see. I don't want to see that milkman's face ever again. I want to see what happens to the milkman's face, though. And number three, the filmmakers were worried that the film would not get released because of Big Bad Disney. A fact. Because they stole the music from Disney? (laughs) I was thinking his Disney would put out something. I'm just going to say fact, although it doesn't make sense, but truly the the music that we get in this is Pirates of the Caribbean, bad things happening. Oh my God. I'm going to say fact because maybe Disney owns R.L. Stein in perpetuity. Also, Disney doesn't own Pirates of the Caribbean, so I don't know what I'm on about, but you get my point. Don't they? Okay, so whether or not Disney owns everything is up for debate, but in reality, here's what happened. This one is a fact. So they you know, came together, they start to make the movie, they're going to make this a reality, they're working with 21st Century Fox. Guess what happens to 21st Century Fox? It gets bought up by Disney. And so immediately they're like, dude, they don't really do R-rated horror movies. That's not kind of their thing. We're never going to get to get this to release. So eventually they split off from Disney and... You know, lo and behold, they released with Netflix. Now we've all seen it. Praise be. And that's been Factor Fiction. Well, praise be indeed. And there you have it, folks. Fear Street Part 3, 1666. The concluding chapter in this trilogy has earned three slashes and two hacks. And we've had a lot to talk about here. It doesn't end here by any means. There are a lot of feelings in here, things that are a little bit personal for me. But we want to know what you think and whose side you're on. Keep in mind, there are a number of ways you can reach out to us, starting with our website, hackerslash.live. And on our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you have to yawn every time you see somebody yawn, please reach out to our Hackerslash hotline so you can tell us about it. You can leave us a voicemail at 757-606-0128 or visit hackerslash.live to send us an audio message. And if thinking of the 17th century gives you nightmares about reading the Scarlet Letter every single year in elementary and middle school, you can send us an email to feedback at hackerslash.com. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, or if you're a lesbian, consider becoming one of our patrons. You can visit patreon.com slash hacker slash to earn cool perks for as low as $1 a month. We'll see you next time, folks. And remember, one does not summon the devil by chance. Bye. Bye.